Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwell-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Awesome. Well, hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on Regenerative by Design. I'm Joni, your host, and today we have John Manuel joining us from Dryland Genetics. So welcome, John. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Joni. Yeah, I'm super stoked that we could make this happen. Um, You have a really interesting background and working on some super cool projects. So I just am thrilled that we can tell the world a little bit about what you're doing right now in the world of millet and dryland agriculture and drought resistant agriculture. And it's really important stuff that most people don't know a lot about. So this is going to be a fantastic episode. And where are you calling in from today, John? Uh, I'm in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, just north of Minneapolis. Okay. All right. Well, very cool. So you do have a, a really interesting background from a commodities perspective. I was wondering if we could start out today and have you just let the audience know a little bit about your background. I mean, you've worked for the big guys like General Mills and the mid-sized guys like Miller Milling, which they're a fantastic uh, organization. And and they're also one that a lot of people don't know about because they're in that middle world of how their flour gets to their ramen, for instance, <laughs> and um, those kind of things. So if you'd just take a few minutes and let us know a little bit about your background, where did you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And how did you end up in commodities and grains? Yeah, I grew up not far from where I'm at today. I grew up in uh, uh, an area called Ramsey, Minnesota, which is, you know, today is sort of known as an exurb of Minneapolis. Um, but when I was a kid, it was it was further into, into the country. So really, you know, kind of always grew up straddling that line between urban and rural. Um, and it's mm-hmm. kind of that, you know, an interesting sort of foray into my career and, and why I why I do what I do and why I love what I do. Um, you know, my my father was, was involved in agriculture as a cash grain broker. Um, so okay. I was always in and around the business side of agriculture, but not farming myself. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, I, growing up as a kid hearing about that, I always thought, you know, that, that sounds boring. So I thought it was the last thing I was going to get, get into. Um, so I, I actually famous went, last words, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I went to college for, um, advertising and public relations actually. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was really excited to get into that world until like, you get out of college and realize just how many other people want to be in that world um, and sort of uh, tripped into agriculture a little bit where I, I joined. It was actually my father's business partner um, had a business as an agricultural freight broker, you know, sort of trading mm-hmm. secondary market of all the hopper cars that grain elevators use to to shift grain wow. around. The um and so I, I joined to help out for a short amount of time. And, and that's really when I fell in love with the world of agriculture. Um, just learning how that system works yourself when you don't have that visibility of it was, was really, really mind expanding for me and, and interesting. And, and, I, and I essentially never left. I, I started there um, and, and formed a lot of great relationships with 
lots of people, a broad network of everybody who's touching rail cars, when you think about it from a commodity standpoint, it is really big. So it helped me build a really good network. And, and one of my biggest customers at the time was General Mills, which developed a relationship there. So when an opportunity came to jump and go to a company like that, um, I, I leaped at it and, and went there and I wanted to learn not to just be uh, a middleman in the brokerage world, but enjoy, you know, what it's like being a principal, working for a big company like that. Um, and, and really kind of got thrown into the deep end of the pool of, you know, trading <laughs> and sourcing wheat for their yeah. flour mills. And then... Yeah, for a big company. Wow. I mean, yeah. talk about <laughs> talk about macro scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went from a three-person company to a 35,000-person company. So it was a big, it was a big shift for sure. Um, and they're, you know, uh, uh, more closer to where you're at today. I was merchandising uh, commodities out of... They had I, grain elevators in Idaho at the time, which have since changed hands a few times. But there I really learned a lot about all that goes into irrigated agriculture. You know, what, what happens, my, my main experience was trading with sort of commodities giants on the plains. So to, to mm-hmm. deal with what's going on in, in Idaho and California and places like that, where I was purchasing wheat for a flour mill was really another wake up call of, of everything that leads me to where I'm at today of, you know, how we grow food in a lot of, you know, desert areas or desertification areas, um, mm-hmm. really across North America and, and how that does affect the food system. And everything it takes to get the food that we that we want to grow that, that gets to the massive population centers like Los Angeles and, and out on the East Coast. Yep. Um, I learned a yeah. lot. There. That's cool. It really is a big puzzle. And I love that you have spent your life in what I call the, the sexy middle because it's almost tongue in cheek because it's the it's the area that nobody knows about. It's kind of a cult. It's kind of hidden away. Most people don't even think about it. They think about farms and then they think about the store but they don't ever really think about everything that's in between, which really is the most important when you think about it. So I call it the sexy middle. Cause I really think we need people to really get involved and add a little more appeal to what happens there and a lot more transparency, which is going to be transformative to the food system. I think that's the next, the next big thing that's going to happen as far as consumer awareness. So you have a, a very unique and very deep understanding of how that whole world works. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I like the way you refer to it, too, because I think, you know, people are becoming, you know, we've seen a lot of consumers uh, get much more interested in being closer to understanding, you know, they want to be closer to the supply chain. They want it to come more direct, um, but without really understanding how all that happens and how that's going to happen. Um, and how it affects cost. <laughs> that, yeah, especially it's going to lead to really right, you know, today more than ever with with inflation going on, like. In the flour milling world, we've seen this coming for years with truck driver shortages, what's that's doing to freight prices, um, and now seeing it uh, across a major scale as, you know, factories have to pay more for workers, um, you know, really seeing that supply chain get hit with all those small pieces of inflation that have been building for a long time, um, you know, has really just done a ton to spike prices. And now everybody's got it on their grocery bill uh, and, and education and, and what it means when that, that sort of falls apart a little. Yeah, you can run, but you can't hide when it starts affecting your everyday eating patterns. In fact, Ed and I were just talking about that earlier this week, talking about how I bet the Instapot sales are going to spike again and things like that as people just, um, again, like during COVID, start thinking about cooking more from scratch and buying things in more raw forms that require some of that value-added processing, aka cooking you know, and, pre- and preparing to be happening at home again. Yeah, I think it's, it's 
you know, definitely, you know, uh, stress makes change as always, as in any system. And oh, yeah. you've obviously got a lot of that going on in the world right now with, you know, what's what's happening with climate leading into it, then happening with, uh, you know, what we're seeing from COVID pandemics perspective and how that's changed, how the consumer shops and how the consumer prepares and ultimately mm-hmm. how they buy, which is affecting what the companies make. And, and you're seeing all these shifts mm-hmm. and pivots. And I think, you know, so much of the supply chain, uh, you know, shakiness right now is coming out of that. Any changing system, you're going to have all sorts of stress. And then you throw labor shortage on top of that. Um, and it just mm-hmm. compounds all the problems. Sure does. Interesting. So how did you get from General Mills, which is like the big of the big, to Miller Milling, which is a really exceptional company? I know a lot of people who have worked for Miller Milling and always really impressed by the people who work there. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was a really unique opportunity that that kind of happened by chance. But, you know, back to that stress makes change things uh, statements. I think it was, you know, right around 2012, 2013, the Canadian Wheat Board went away. Um, and that was, you know, essentially a government-run single buying desk for for managing the trade of wheat in Canada. So when that was going away, uh, a major Durham miller like Miller Milling was concerned. You know, they've been buying from one entity. Now they have to deal with all these independent grain companies that they didn't have contact mm-hmm. with. Um, I had relationships there from my rail job and and also in, in helping with what my father had done started being a middleman to the oats world. So I had lots of deep connections at those Canadian grain companies. And that really, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of gave me the background. And then also dealing with California agriculture, you know, Miller Milling had a, had a Durham mill in California and a Durham mill in Virginia, but they were buying predominantly from the central Valley in California um, and predominantly from Canada. So I just had a weird sort of unique uh, sort of by happenstance skill set that really fit their needs. And, Mm-hmm. You know, they were a they were a smaller, responsive company who knew what they needed. And so mm-hmm. it was a few months of, of conversation. And, and my time at General Mills was much shorter than I had planned. I was there for just a little over two years and then uh, made the jump to Miller Milling just because it was a great opportunity. And mm-hmm. what I was really interested in was also their parent company, Nishin Siphon Group, was was very interested in growth within the flour milling world. And that was rare. Mm-hmm. In these times where, you know, the flour milling business is, is an older model that's seen as a cash cow by a lot of companies. Um, and they were really willing to come in and invest and grow. And that that attracted me. So I made the leap. Oh, cool. What what were some of the highlights of, of your time working there? Like what kind of things were eye opening to you working on that level and that tier of the the path to market world from the farm to the table, so to speak? Yeah, it was a much different model than than what was happening uh, at my previous employer, where it was, you know, branded products that were high value, a lot of focus on smaller packaging and distributor market. Whereas at Miller, mm-hmm. I really got exposure to the big bulk world of how, you know, grain car, you know, rail cars full of flour are shipped and what kind of plants those are going into, how cost competitive that commoditized world can be. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, really learning and growing through my career there had the opportunity to go through a you know large scale acquisition um as the flower industry changed and some two giants merged we were able to buy sort of the, the mills that that the department of justice wouldn't let them keep so I got you know just a broad exposure of business there and a broad exposure across the food world and and what it all takes to make it happen and then was able to grow mm-hmm. in my career and jump into sales and really learn the hurdles of you know, what you have to go through to get products approved at a company and, and all that. So fantastic background. So I have 
gotten introduced to you through your work at Dryland Genetics um, and a shared passion for millet, which millet is a grain in the commodity world that most people have probably not heard of and except maybe in the context of like um, bird feed or, you know, things like that. Maybe if they buy Dave's killer bread or like a super seed health bread, they see it in their sandwich loaf. They're like, Oh, what is that little thing? Is it a seed? Is it a grain? What is it? And um, you know, but millet really is a, a high potential crop for so many reasons. So what led you to join the team at Dryland Genetics? Yeah. So, you know, similar to to most Americans, I think I didn't know a heck of a lot about millet, even working in agriculture, other than you know, knew it was kind of grown out in the Dakotas and Colorado, Nebraska, and treated as as birdseed. But um, I was also very aware of what was going on with, you know, everything going on with with climate and in the food world, seeing large corporate companies make sustainability claims, you know, really intending to do the right thing, but also seeing that, you know, the, the claims were coming before the solutions were there to be provided. Mm-hmm. And so, right. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely happening yeah. a lot. Yeah. So really went through a lot of work, even at Miller trying to figure out, you know, what's the right solution to help these customers, you know, meet these claims that they need and like getting exposed to lots of things that at the end of the day, you know, looked and felt a lot like greenwashing. It's, you know, certification of processes rather than any sort of tangible change that we could really take and go, go sell or, or do or, or bring to a customer as a solution. Um, yes. The thing that got me most excited was um, when I first got introduced to Dryland Genetics and, and what they were doing, it was really you know, kind of more on the on the research scale, they had done, you know, years worth of, of good breeding techniques to really focus on improvement in millet to make it more agronomically viable. Because the plant is so efficient, they knew it could be a great tool to help, you know, save water use, um, especially in high plains areas, especially in areas where aquifers are being drained too quickly due to irrigation. Um, so, so going and learning about it and learning about what all millet can do and just how efficient that plant is, and understanding, you know, that it's eaten in other parts of the world as regular parts of the diet, it just seemed like such a simple, tangible solution to me. I saw, you know, a, an amazing solution to to a problem that's more now than ever versus something we have to worry about in the future. Um, and, and water, right? I thought it it just right. seemed like an extremely interesting product project. You know, I I considered it for a while, and I found myself not being able to stop thinking about it and the ability to do what I do and try to do good in the world was, was really a driving fo- focus for me, um, mm-hmm. making a leap to, to, to go move into a much smaller company. Really cool. So, yeah, I mean, for the listeners who are on the show today, you know, we'll, we'll take a deeper dive into millet and a little bit about it. And we're going to actually, you know, have several podcasts that are dedicated to millets as a general food group. But in this conversation today, we're really going to be focused on the type of millet that's referred to as proso millet. And that's the one that's widely grown in North America and harvested. There are other types of millets. Um, It's kind of one of those misnomer names that applies to about eight different plant species, all called millet, even though they're really not totally related. I mean, they're related, but they're like cousins. So it's a fascinating thing. Um, But proso millet just on its own, it has tremendous agricultural agronomic value And when I look at it from the perspective of a food brand that's really dedicated to making great tasting foods that are inclusive to people with allergies, high nutritional density, nutritional value, and have a significant climate impact, um, millet is top of the list as far as things that we need to scramble to put into foods for humans 
but we're up against this barrier of getting people to understand that millet really isn't just for people who have a gluten allergy or a gluten intolerance or celiac. It's actually a food that has value that makes it significant to everybody who eats every day. So I'd love you to just take a moment and talk about millet from a from a business case perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the most exciting things to me. First and foremost, I like to start, you know, as far back to the beginning as you can, in which, you know, there's there's lots of new evidence. You can read and find articles about it, but that that millet is essentially the the one of the first grains, you know, really domesticated by humans. Um, even at the same time or possibly before, you know, barley and wheat were. Um, especially uh, in African uh, cultures and, and in Asian cultures, it's still a large part of the diet today. Again, there's there's different. Mm-hmm. Notes. We can get into that later, but uh, yeah, it's like a whole other topic. But you know, it's funny with this whole Neolithic founder group of crops that they've really studied to say the birth of agriculture with these crops. But a lot of that is through the lens of like the birth of agriculture only happened in the Fertile Crescent, where right. when you do look at the actual archaeological record. Um, I know some agronomists that have even found some pretty good evidence indicating that Neanderthals were cultivating millets throughout Asia um, way before the time of the actual agricultural revolution as we know it, it along the Tigris and Euphrates, which really brings in a whole nother narrative around food and sustainability and resiliency um, when we go back to these early crops that really pioneered humanity as we know it. So. Sorry, just a little sidestep nerd no. time there. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I'm, I'm known to digress myself, so feel free to redirect me. <laughs> if you think so. uh, yeah, no problem. But that's, that's all just to say that, you know, humans have been eating millet forever. You know, we've been eating it, so, so no one should be scared of eating millet. Obviously, humans haven't been, um, you know, from a, you know, basic, you know, protein, starch, carbohydrates. It's, it's very similar to... Uh, all sorts of other grains we eat. You know, when you think of rice, uh, wheat, mm-hmm. corn, um, it, it has all the same, you know, there's there's nothing missing, nothing left out really in millet. And, and in many cases, uh, as I'm sure maybe you'll touch on a little bit more, and I think you focus on in a lot of your work, um, other benefits that it might bring as well too. And it was widely consumed in Europe before the Colombian era when corn kind of came in and dethroned it, essentially, because mm-hmm. it was like this new crop and really exciting and you know, but when you do look at the skeletal records of Europeans, there's a lot of evidence that they were eating a ton of C4 plants before corn showed up, which does is very indicative of the role of millets in the European diet um, for many, many, many centuries. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, and then, you know, to shift ahead and, and look at it in today's future of, OK, we've got, you know, this big overall problem of we're going to have, you know, billions and billions of people to feed. And that train doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. And you know, mm-hmm. we need to find a way to to do it without a way that's going to strip strip the planet dry of, of nutrients. Um, Correct. So why not use the most efficient grain stock that we know of uh, on the planet today in millet? It uh, mm-hmm. you know, uses less of everything. It's an extremely efficient plant. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the one issue here to focus on in North America, you know, for to choose one that that millet can take priority on, it's it's really water conservation. Uh, right. And that's, you know, one yeah, which is such a big deal in the West. I mean, I think people out East forget about what a big deal it is for us out here where water is now the limiting reagent. It truly is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so much of the farmland, um, even if it does have historical irrigation, as we see with Sigma and the Colorado River, um, a lot of that 
agriculture is going to radically change in the next few years because of limited access to irrigation. That's where things like millet really play a huge role. Yeah, and I think even in those areas where, you know, stuff will need irrigation, you know, can you irrigate less? Uh, and I think millet will have a huge role mm-hmm. at, you know, as we just have fewer and fewer drops of water to put on plants, we need to make sure we're, we're consuming the ones that use a lot less of it. Um, right. And we've all brought through, you know, the steps and paces you see going on in California of, you know, don't, don't water your lawn. Everything we grew up with, with turn the water off when you're brushing your teeth, uh, that, those sort of water conservation efforts. Um, but to put that into perspective, um, this is, you know, to use it's the Kansas Department of Agriculture's resources. So 94.5% of aquifer water use um, in Kansas goes to agriculture. So like the simple wow. best thing you can do if you care about saving water is eat something that consumes less of it. Is going to save wow. more water than turning off your faucet, putting the low flow showers in, you know, eat, eat milk. Yeah, everyone really gravitates to that. And that's really important. But it's like we ignore this whole agricultural use case. 94%. It's yeah. really that high. I yeah, hadn't heard it. that number. That's ble- that's crazy. Yeah, that's the use wow. of gravel water in, in the state of Kansas. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're in a really sensitive aquifer area when you look at like long-term planning for agriculture. Wow. It's, um, that's startling. I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah. And it's, you know, like I said, it's, you know, lots of things in, in, in you know, the conservation space are always viewed as a lens of what do we do for 50 years down the road? And I think we're in the space right now of, we know the Ogallala Reservoir, the giant underwater lake that feeds that big Midwest bread bowl that's not important to just the United States, but the world is mm-hmm. very quickly running out of water. Um, and and yeah. so and you it's 6,000 years to replenish it. It's not yeah. a replenishing aquifer. So like if at the yeah. very least we can do is start eating stuff that'll at least slow the, the disappearance of that water. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really, you know, how, how I view and how we at Dryland Genetics view, view this is really you know, we, we don't think that mill is the end all be all answer for all of that regenerative agriculture needs, but we really do think that it is, you know, a great sort of first step in the, in the journey of 10,000 miles, you know, you've got you've mm-hmm. to take, take a, a good step. And, and I'm a big believer in, you know, agriculture is, is so important to everything we do in society that it also is going to play one of the most important roles as a tool to, to fix some of our problems. But if we're looking at it as a tool, we need to make sure it's a tool that fits the hand of American agriculture in the stage mm-hmm. of today. Um, and I think with what we're doing at Dryland Genetics is really aimed towards that. You know, we don't, we, we don't, we know that just creating one more big monocrop is not the end all be all yeah. of the solution. But if we can just, you know, work on one crop and show that we can grow it and show that we can, you know, start to bring that biodiversity, um, I think there's lots of other crops we can focus on in the future. Um, and get right. grow the right. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And I'm glad you mentioned the biodiversity piece. Cause you know, I think a lot of times people do have that reductionistic lens where it's like, Oh, from one monocrop to the next and not really realizing that it's that richness of biodiversity. That's going to drive resiliency in our farmlands moving forward. And, and, and having a toolkit for farmers to pull from where they can, they can pivot and still grow food in response to the like week to week changes of climate or environment or availability of fertilizer, availability of seed, et cetera. And like, I just was talking to a farmer this morning and he was, he's in North Dakota 
and talking about how they haven't even really gotten the tractors out because it's been waterlogged. They were dry, 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 and then boom, cold, wet. And he's like, oh boy, this is where I really hope I can find a market for ProSo because we have a lot of areas that we just can't plant right now and we're going to miss that critical window for the early season. But by the time it dries out, it'd be perfect because millet has such a short growing season. And that's another thing that is important for us to talk about is that short harvest window that, you know, for these farmers that are responding to inclement weather, he's like, boy, if I could just sneak some ProSo in there, boom, I would get ROI off of that acreage. We produce food. I'd get profit and it's going to fit into this weird model of weather we have this year. And that's one thing to touch on, you know, what we do and how we do it a little bit. You know, everything we do is is non-GMO. We're not using genetic modification, but we are using modern science to to look at the traits and know, um, you know, try to know what we're doing when we make crosses. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, a really important thing that we did is, is all the, you know, Proso hasn't had a ton of commercial development. And when I say a ton, I mean like, almost none in, in North America. Yeah. <laughs> so everything's come out of yep. university programs. And a lot of the varieties that were out there, you know, were released back in like 1994. And when mm-hmm. our head reader, Santosh Rajput, who's, who's a genius, along with, or along with both Schnabels, the founders of the company, um, know much more about plant science than I do. So I'll do my best here. But they, they, they really noticed that the genetic diversity of the Proso um, that was created here in the United States was was just really narrow genetic diversity. It was grabbing lines from where it was growing, Nebraska, Colorado. Um, so, so we really brought in some, you know, really broad germplasm from across the globe, stuff from Germany and and Russia and Ukraine and China, um, and really were able to mm-hmm. look at, you know, trying to trying to find those best traits so that we could make a proso that can yield enough to, to to really help be a tool for the farmer. And when I say that, I mean you know, they have to make money. They're under enough pressure today. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is what perpetuates, you know, kind of that monocropping system we see is, is the commoditized nature of it. So I think, you know, making sure, like I said, that we're a tool that fits the hand of American agriculture. We know it needs to help farmers mm-hmm. uh, and ranchers make money while helping to preserve their soil. Um, and I really think. Yeah. At scale. Yeah. 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 At scale. And that's such an important thing because there's so much cool innovation happening and micro farming level, which is such a different economic model. And it's a great economic, it's a great experimental ground, but it's not, it doesn't have the impact potential that these big at scale plays do. And I think it's so important to keep that in mind. I mean, I love the romantic notion of small scale ag, but on an economic, you know, national global level, it has some significant challenges for profitability and farming's Farmers aren't nonprofit people. I mean, it's these are for-profit businesses and it's part of the the engine that cranks the wheel of the American, you know, economy and the American dream. So we have to always be really mindful of how to keep this to be profitable. And I in my mind, it, it enhances profitability because you're giving farmers more options to be creative and to try different avenues that will enhance their economic model rather than being upholdent to the super narrow commodities market where they have very limited path to market and almost function in a vacuum where they're not in a free market economic system. It's like the government, huge, huge industry, and that's it. There's like no choice, no option. And it's not, doesn't really operate in a free market system. So I think what you guys are doing really helps push back on that. Yeah, I think, and I think there is, you know, those, those dream end goals of what it can be. And then there's where we are today. And I really do think of this as, as a simple step of, of you know making a march towards those goals if if we can't you mm-hmm. know take 
one of the most efficient plants in the world and and make it a, a larger scale ingredient um, across not mm-hmm. only human consumption, but how we feed animals. Um, and that's an important note, note I can jump into as well, too, when yeah. we talk about water saving. Some of the some of the most easily, you know, marketable water savings are going to be for people who feed animals versus just mm-hmm. you know, in a grain bowl and human consumption. Yeah, let's talk about that because that's something that you can't talk about large scale ag and climate impact agriculture without talking about that because the statistics on how much of our grain um, and and pulse, so soybean and, and whatnot included, how much of that actually ends up in the bellies of animals is actually really startling. Like from a statistics standpoint, I think the average consumer, when they hear those numbers, they're like, wait a minute, what? Like they don't, they don't realize how significant that is. So if you could talk a little bit about that, because biodiversity in our animal, you know, feed is, is actually just as important from a health perspective, um, gut microbiomes perspective, um, regenerative ag overlay perspective. So why don't you just riff on that a little bit? Yeah. And, and I'll keep it really, really simple too, because I'm by no means a, an animal nutritionist or, or anything too, but I just think of, you know, we, we've seen certainly the, the poultry market as an area where A, you can easily feed poultry to chickens today. They've got gizzard, they can digest the hull, doesn't need to be dealt, you know, right? It, it's in bird seed today. So, oh, so much easier. Yeah. And chickens with it is a <laughs> very easy move. And if you think of an individual egg, if, if, a, if a large egg layer were to replace their corn stock in their, in their feed with proso millet, um, and you think about how much less water gets used on the millet as compared to the corn, each individual egg would, you know, there's different ways you can do the calculation, but our range we've come up with is around 12 to 18 gallons of water per individual egg. So, you know, wow, really? Yep. Okay. Could you say that one more time? Cause I, we need to write that down. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the egg of a proto fed chicken will ultimately use about 12 to 18 gallons uh, of per water per egg less than, than a corn fed chicken. Holy smokes. That is that's insane. That's a lot of water per egg, not per dozen, right? Per, per egg, yeah, per egg. Wow. Well, so you took a company the size, very, and they, you know, amazing. and then um, similar math we've done on like a four ounce pork chop on a proso fed pig, it would be around twenty five gallons of water per four ounces for a four for every four ounce pork chop. Um, so, so wow, we're, you're you making know. more excited me more excited about proso than I was before, John. This is really cool because <laughs> um, I just often don't go there on the animal side because our whole our whole line is plant-based so we're you know the the grain's going direct to the human belly um but when you do add that in especially right now with you know americans eat a lot of meat and they eat a ton of eggs i'm allergic to eggs so i never eat them but boy that's that's a different lens in which to view the role of proso on a larger landscape of impact yeah so if you looked at like you know i won't name names for for everybody's sake but a, a large poultry producer in the U.S. or that that's making, you know, lots of chicken into food. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. think of the largest one. If they were to swap out all their corn feed for, for proso millet, they'd save essentially around 2% of the entire Missouri River flows worth of fresh water every year. Uh, so you could make wow. massive impact. Um, by, so when I say, you know, uh, y- you can save more water by thinking about, you know, what you eat and the water it uses not only applies to, like you said, putting the grain in your belly, but are you eating a, a more sustainably fed, um, you know, sort of animal, sort of the more of the model yeah. that you've heard of with, you know, it's not the cow, but the how. And, and there's all, I don't want to mm-hmm. get into that, that conversation because yeah. common threads go off on those, 
Oh yeah. It's a whole nother topic. And I mean, of course, like pasture raise is, is the gold standard, but as we shift this massive um, industry that is animal-based products, I mean, that's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to go from CAFOs to pasture in like six months. That that's going to be a transitional period. And if something like Proso can play an important role, that's really, really important. Um, And I mean, living up here, I mean, you're in Minnesota too. There's even if you have your critters in the pasture, I mean, there's snow on the ground for many months of the year. So um, feed is an important conversation. Um, Anyone who lives in the North and does any sort of ranching, farming, you know, of animals in the North, like you realize that there are limitations to this more utopian pasture fed model because the weather doesn't really cooperate when it's like 20 below and frozen. You can't send them out to graze. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah. And I think too, it's important for, you know, those people thinking about feeding chickens and there's lots of great companies that have, have really thought about that and marketed it well. And that's why you see so much price stratification in the egg market already. So I think they've really been mm. leading the way on that side. I think there's room for, you know, even the feed pellets that they buy, you know, it doesn't need to be 100% switched to ProSo millet, but can five, 10% start to work its way into mm-hmm. the rations to help everybody save water. And is there, you know, marketing sustainability goals that can be met by making those inclusions? But I think there's a real, you know, business case, as you said, leading back to the original question of, of why mill is going to be important over the next 10 to 15 years. And, and I think really, you know, much, much broader and larger as we get further down the road. Wow, that's a really thought provoking. Thanks for taking us down that journey of, of just thinking on a larger level about the impact um, just beyond that kind of narrow focus of like adding some millet to your bread, you know? Yeah. So that, that was, that was really, really interesting. So, you know, when, when I look at like the farmers that you're mostly working with, you've talked about the Midwest, but what have you seen as far as farmer adoption in other places? I mean, do you really see the best use case in the Midwest where it's heavily row cropped and we're, you know, looking to diversify those rotations or are you seeing some other, adoption patterns in other places where people like California, for instance, where they're under significant drought pressure and they've been doing maybe specialty crops, like maybe they've been orchards and they just had to pull all those orchards out and they're looking for something that could create an ROI rather than letting the land go fallow. Have you worked with anybody there? Yeah. So actually the, the story of, of year one here for us really commercializing what we're doing at Dryland Genetics is, is kind of that story in general where you know, initially we had a pretty narrow focus of, you know, can we go and compete against the major varieties being sold in Colorado, Nebraska and have success? Um, and that's certainly been the case as, you know, like I said, there hasn't been new varieties released since 1994. So, so those wins are, you know, have come a bit easier than we expected, but really, you know, what we expected uh, has happened, but just much faster than we thought of people, especially in areas that are really watertight today, where water costs them money. Um, you know, California, Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, New, you know, all, all those areas, Utah, mm-hmm. yeah, you do, we've got tons of interest there. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. obviously the environments are, are really vastly different and that is where, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the amazing power of the plant of millet itself, uh, has reared its head to, to be able to flex with what we do at dryland genetics. And again, I, you know, it's, it's a bit proprietary, but I don't know enough to get us into any trouble. Um, but our, our breeder <laughs> yeah. has has created uh, you know a rapid cycling program where he's able to get four to five generations worth worth of development done um, every season. So you know we've got a massive stock of of somewhere around like over cool. fifteen hundred lions 
that we're developing for, you know, basically geographic improvements. Um, and we've got tests amazing in, you know, uh, South Dakota, potentially North Dakota. Um, they're working on stuff in Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, potentially. Um, and, and then, you know, new development, not quite yet done, but hopefully um, out in Nevada and California as a possibility as well. Some of those planning mm-hmm. seasons, we might have to shift. It might be more fall focused than summer focused uh, to adjust yeah. temperatures. But we're, we're really hoping to be, you know, growing and developing varieties kind of in 10 plus states within a year. Um, so, so wow, we'll- that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, for people who are listening and, and aren't really familiar with these plants um, like millet, you know, they're they're different in the fact that they're really sensitive, traditionally sensitive to really cool nights. But, you know, there are varieties that can be found that do have more tolerance while still performing under really intense daytime heat. And, you know, my firsthand experience with Proso pilots was um, with our Washington State University program, Diversifying Fields and Pallets. It's with Dr. Kevin Murphy and his um, his research group where we're looking at, you know, developing some prosos that will work in our neck of the woods here in the inland northwest. And we had a pilot growing at my friend um, Jason Bishop's farm, conventional wheat background, large scale um, commodity ag. And he planted some proso um, right after he harvested some wheat. And of course, like they put it in the ground, they drilled it right. They directly drilled it into the wheat stubble. So it had some protection against the elements and boom all of a sudden it was like 115 degrees for a week right when these little guys were seedlings it never had a drop of rain never once it was seeded completely 100% dry the entire lifespan of this crop over 100 degrees I think it was some god-awful number like 20 days or something I'm probably exaggerating Jason can ping in in the comments and correct me but we still harvested proso I mean it wasn't it was stunted it wasn't perfect it wasn't the highest quality but it actually produced seed. Like that's crazy. I was absolutely blown away where, you know, a lot of the farmers in that area had really intense wheat losses that year too, because of the heat. So if I'm telling the story incorrectly, Jason can can come in and correct us. But to me, it was a real testament to the resiliency of Proso as a crop and, and standing up in the face of significant environmental pressure. No, and I think, you know, we're seeing some of those same, you know, pressures, come right now at a time when we're trying to commercialize and that's helpful but i think really just part of that larger story of stress makes change you know what's going on with winter wheat in in southwest kansas and the texas oklahoma panhandle is is giving us an opportunity to maybe fill some of that gap this year as a short-term tool um and really encouraging us to um after after talking with more growers in that area they're really looking for solutions um that can help and be you know just just more efficient on using very minimal water as you know you've we've all seen and heard the horror stories and you can go on twitter right now and and sort of follow along with week tour 22 and and see you know the dryness they're dealing with just in southwest kansas um it's it's insane a problem and i think a dust bowl yeah and i certainly think that um you know millet's going to be a tool that can play that role in the future of of a crop that Mm -hmm. can grow and help fill in that gap after winter wheat, that's that's kind of typically how it's grown in Colorado today, is it in a rotation? Mm-hmm. With so um, I, I think there's tons of room to grow there, especially as that gluten-free, non-wheat flour world grows along with it. Um, and that's one mm-hmm. of the things, you know, I do in my role every day is try to try to make sure we, we know the crop's going to take off on the grower side. Try to make sure enough people are, are hearing about it, interested in it, trying to include it. 
that we grow the demand side at the same time as, as we grow the supply side so that there's mm-hmm. uh, not a collapsing market situation where, you know, farmers leap into it, uh, trying to do their best and then end up getting burned on the back because yeah. the market falls apart. Well, right. Yeah, which is a big deal. I mean, I do get calls from farmers. Oh, geez. Sometimes it's like four or five days a week. Um, farmers that are like, hey, I want to grow millet. We want to grow for snacktivists because we're working towards regenerative. We're doing all the stuff we'd like to avoid just selling to the silo. We need alternative path to market. And we don't, we're a growing startup. So we don't have the demand pull yet to support all these farmers that are desperately wanting to grow for us. Also, the other thing we're up against, as you and I have talked about a lot, is that value added processing piece and the economics behind shipping it somewhere to be dehulled and then shipping it to be milled and then making it into a product. It's, you know, that just adds a lot of unnecessary fluff to the profit margin just because you're hauling it all over the country. There's no efficiency in that value added processing piece. And I know for us in the Northwest here, we'd like to have more millet and more diversified grains, but we really lack access to um, secondary processing. You know, it's just, we can clean it, but we can't dehull it and we, and we definitely can't mill it. So if you could just talk about that for a couple more minutes before we go into our final topics, that'd be great. Yeah, I think that's really, you know, a big part of what we do and do and what I've seen um, since I've come on board is, is like a lot of small grains that, that have been left behind and haven't grown into a big monocrop. The processing world just isn't built around it yet. Um, and I think it's really one of the stories of why millet's going to be a success is, is A, you know, if you think about it compared to the way quinoa took off, um, you know, that was sourcing stuff that was grown in these really beautiful image ways for consumers to think about, but they're also uh, not super sustainable when you have to grow something in the Andes and then it's shipping through containers and you're shipping it all over the world and processing there, processing it here. You know, this is a a sort of a movement we can get ahead of and build the supply chain out on the front end um, and and grow the crop right here. So you think it can be, you know, grown in the United States. If some of those bottlenecks can be reduced, if people start dehulling it in the same locations that they're milling it, um, that reduces mm-hmm. an entire extra truck trip, which is going to make it more sustainable and more cost effective for, you know, big companies to to go out and, and pick it up as an ingredient. Mm-hmm. And, and a mm-hmm. lot of the work I've talked to for consumers who want to, who have said like, yeah, we kind of know the mill story. We're interested, but it's really expensive. It's hard to get a hold of. We don't have a secure supply chain. So right now they've been hesitant to add it to it. Um, you yeah. Know, working hand-to-hand That's the tough partners. thing with big customers. Yeah. I mean, if you're General Mills, you can't roll out an international snack line made out of Proso Millet today because, you know, you really need littler brands like me, like Snacktivist to be like, hey, let's do this at our scale and then Mm -hmm. scale it up and we bring the whole, you know, industry with us. And then eventually, you know, it makes a lot more sense, but it's going to take some time and you have to be more nimble to accommodate that. So larger brands have a really tough time being nimble in that way. It's like turning a warship instead of turning a tugboat, you know? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's really my goal is to try to, you know, sort of be there to be a resource for the millet industry as well, too, as if there's anyone out there wondering, you know, how they could get their hands on millet today or who they could partner with in the future, um, you know, reach out and uh, get, go to the Dryland Genetic website, go to the contact mm-hmm. us page. You can you can find me on there. Um, it's all I do every day is try to find ways to to grow the millet market. So, so I'm I'm open for anybody looking to know how they can gain access to yeah. it. Um, we'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes too, but you know, just to to wrap it up here, John, I'm, I'm, you know, I just want to touch on this whole notion of regenerative 
food systems, regenerative agriculture. And it's a growing buzzword um, that's definitely at risk of some serious greenwashing right now. But, you know, I'm, I just was wondering, since you have spent your whole professional career in commodities and agricultural, um, you know, items coming out of agricultural systems, like when did you first hear about regenerative as a notion? And what do you think that regenerative as a concept, like regenerative by design, like the name of this podcast is thinking about how we create resilient, regenerative worlds um, intentionally rather than always just responding in this like emergency knee jerk kind of fashion in response to crisis. Like what can we do to be really intentional about building a food system that's going to feed 12 billion people um, without exhausting the planet um, sooner than later? Yeah, I think it's a hard part, you know, of everything we do in corporate America, there's not enough generational thinking, which leads to to some short-sightedness. I think there's been, you know, really large companies with all the best intentions in the world who've gone out there and, and staked their claims. But I think it's really going to be, you know, dependent on those leaders, leaders like yourselves in small business, leaders at scale of large businesses of being intentional about, you know, I've made the claims, I really now need to actually go back them up. Um, there's ways you can do that um, by, you know, leaning into companies like ours or yours and find ways to, um, you know, tap into regenerative brands that are going to make you more profitable um, in the long run. But I think it, it's got to be done without a, you know, one quarter at a time COGS reduction model on the sourcing side as well, too. And I think companies are definitely making those shifts as they've made those claims. And when I say COGS, in case that's a, a buzzword for any listeners to you, it's co- cost of goods sold, you know, cost reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're anybody working in large corporate sourcing, that's generally what you're focused on. Um, but I think as those ESG goals become real and important and some regulation can come around those, um, mm-hmm. I think that help drive mm-hmm. the change. But at the same time, it, yep. it's really just going to take leaders taking risks to make those moves now. And I think they'll really position their you know companies well ahead for the long term. And I think, you know, through what we've seen consumers do in organics, um, what they want for shortness of supply chain and clean labeling, um, consumers are going to drive that market as well too, making those conscious choices as a shopper with your everyday actions. Corporations are going to respond to those and they're going to drive towards the profitability of trying to capture your market share. So, you know, personal Mm -hmm. consumer actions and then, you know, corporations being willing to take the leap, they'll be the first ones and they'll get customer loyalty forever when they do it. Especially in the generation that's going to follow, because I think it's it's so important to them. Yep. Um, you know, and they've grown up reading about it and hearing about it. I think it's going to drive mm-hmm. even more every bit of yeah. shopping choices. I agree. You know, I mean, the younger generation, I have kids in the younger generation that are now teenagers and becoming more vocal. And they're, you know, I look at my friends, kids that are college age and in their 20s and, you know, and what they talk about and Generally, I feel like they're like, we're tired of you guys forsaking our future just to make a buck today. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously everybody wants to be profitable. Everybody wants to make money, but they're, they're tired of that prioritizing and and driving decision-making that is actually leaving them a world where they're not confident they're going to have a quality of life like we do today. And in fact, they're pretty much sure that they're inheriting a complete dumpster fire, <laughs> at least according to the kids that I talk to. And I'm like, look, I'm, I'm working, I'm dedicated my whole life to try to leave you guys a better world. But they're like, yeah, but you're like one in a million. So you know, I just think that like, as we push out this broader adoption of this concept of creating resiliency 
in our food system, we really do need to think about the authentic message it sends the next generation. And guess what? If we keep having the great resignation, we're all in a bunch of trouble. So <laughs> corporations need to step it up and, and get real about putting their walk into their talk and their money into their decision-making in an investment perspective where we look at long-term sustainability as its own asset class. And that's the only way we're going to get buy-in from this next generation as workers, as consumers, and as and in participants that keep the world going so that there's someone to care for us when we're elderly. I mean, I'm a nurse. I'm like horrified at the thought of people not wanting to work when I'm 80. If I'm still around, <laughs> it's a really scary thought. So I, I just think we need to change the way we're looking at things radically and get very, very real about what's making the world tick. And it's not what your shareholder profits last quarter were. I mean, it just isn't. So it's um, it's a new world. So thanks so much for sharing yeah. your perspective with us, John. And um, again, like, any, you know, as far as action items, people, what they could do to get involved. And you you said how to get in touch with you. But what's your final thought on how consumers and listeners can get involved in this and make a difference? Uh, I mean, I think consumers thinking about it, I would just say, you know, your loudest voice is going to be with your shopping choices, um, you know, and look beyond, you know, one big word on the front of a label. Because uh, I think there's definitely a view in the world that doesn't get spoken about enough where large companies see that as, you know, they've, they've seen that the price consumers are willing to pay, but they don't want to absorb a pass-through cost to, to do it. It looks like a margin opportunity. So the more you shift to the brands, and, and I think, you know, your large corporations, lots of them are seeing this, and we're seeing that sea change of why they're going out there and staking their claims, because the small brands have gone and done it and eaten away at market share for years. And I think that's, you know, the mm -hmm. more consumers pay attention and care about that stuff, means, you know, the more likely that change is going to come. So I would say from an individual yeah. perspective, get involved by, you know, being conscious and, and making those personal choices about what you eat and, and your dollars will speak more volume than, than you will doing anything else. And, and on the corporate side, I would just Isn't that encouraging truth? those leaders who are, are driving for change, um, you know, not even just from a sustainability climate sense, like it's going to do wonders for you uh, for earnings, for future growth, for future brand loyalty. Yeah. Yeah, it's a long-term profitability play. I mean, it really is from, you know, a pure economic model, but consumers vote every day, three times a day, at least every time they put something in their mouth. So it's something that we really need to be cognizant of. And it's it's not about being perfect. It's about making little steps every day to improve that and to really put the walk in our talk and, and all work together to make this world a better place. It's not right. It's not left. It's forward, as my friend Jason says. Absolutely, so, yeah. um, you know, I just really feel hopeful that we can do this. And I meet people like you and your team and the, the whole team behind Dryland Genetics. I have kind of a deep relationship into that team all the way to, you know, some of the backers. And I, I just see that it's a bunch of people who really are putting their walk um, with their talk and really working every day to make a huge dent in this planet and, and for humanity. So thank you. Absolutely. Yep. I think there's there's hope for the future. And, and honestly, really, my my hope lies in, in, in seeing the agricultural system as it works today, knowing how resilient and able to change it has been in the past and will in the future. Um, I think I think change is coming and it's going to be for the better. Yeah, me too. So thanks so much, John. I really appreciate you joining us and have an awesome day. All right. You too. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc. 
a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.